I guess school holidays have officially started. Some of you are probably still looking for a little bit of a, a getaway destination. I know for our family, a bit of a favourite place was Warnable. Who's, who's been to Warnable at some point? Yes, quite a, quite a few. It is a lovely, lovely little area. We had many family holidays down there. A couple of islands just right off the coast, which at low tide, you could walk to, particularly as a kid. They hadn't discovered warning signs in those days. I think there's a whole host of warning signs nowadays, and rightly so. It's a little bit of a dangerous area. We were... Um, Gee, a number of years ago, not there as a family, but with a youth group on one occasion. And you could basically go around the entire island, sort of just down, down low by the water at low tide. But we were going around at, I don't know, perhaps not high tide, but somewhere in the middle there. And I remember getting to one particular juncture, and, and as we're standing on the rocks, it was very, very obvious, uh, this particular cove, as the water was rushing in, it was very, very obvious that we couldn't go around the edge of the cove. And I remember doing that as a, as a kid. We'd often do that, again, because Dad was responsible. We'd do that at low tide. We'd get little copper one and two cent coins. We'd hide them in the rocks. We'd come back the next year, try to remember where they were. And of course, the salt water discolored them and it was a, it was a source of great joy. On this occasion, though, this was not about hiding coins in the rocks. This was about getting somehow from one side to the other. It was difficult to go back, and as we looked at the cove, we realized, no going around, we'll have to actually go through the water. Now, the problem with this, with this was that, that the, the waves, the movement of the ocean was coming in and it was rising in the cove significantly. Well, that's a plus, because at that particular point, it would be easy to jump in the water and paddle across to the other side. But then, of course, the water lowered again as it, as it went out, and and that's the bit that was a bit scary. That was the bit where you thought, we don't want to be in the water at that point because that, is, that would basically pull us out. And so um, the first person decided, jump in when it's low and let the water rush in and lift you up to the other side. And, and they did that quite successfully. I remember looking at this and, and thinking, I don't know about this. I know it worked for them. But there's always those stories in the newspaper, isn't there, about that one person that it doesn't work for. Anyway, the next person, the water went out, the next person jumped in. Sure enough, the water came back in, it lifted them up onto the other side. And, and I kind of knew, uh, it's about my, my time. I've, I've got to do, are you going to do this or not? And as their group was slowly moving to the other side of the cove, I realized, I, I think I've got to do this. But the question in my mind was this. I've seen it work for others, but is it going to work for me? Is there any other way? Is there any other way at all? And I think that was the question that was in the mind of the disciples. In our passage in Mark today, Jesus is heading up to Jerusalem, and the disciples are astonished because they know the opposition that they are going to face in Jerusalem. They know it. And others who were following Jesus, our passage says, they were actually afraid. Nobody was under any illusion that this was going to be straightforward, that this was going to be simple. Quite frankly, Jesus had already predicted on two occasions that he would be handed over and that he would, 
he would be crucified and, and then that he would rise again. And it was not something that anyone thought was a good idea. I think in the minds of the disciples, they were already asking, is there any other way? Do we have to cross this difficult passage, this difficult body of water that is something like a baptism? Because this could go terribly, terribly wrong. You know, the cross of Christ has become, hasn't it, a symbol that we adorn ourselves with. It can come in silver, it can come in gold, and we hang it from our, our neck and our ears, and we, we embed it into rings and jewellery, and we, we wear it in different places. We ordain our household with it. But back in the time of Jesus, that would make about as much sense as, you know, hanging a little electric chair around your, around your neck of wearing a ring that had a lethal injection, you know, kind of engraved there. The scorn of the cross. Nobody thought it was a good idea back then. What has become a symbol of, of torture, and, and, and not just death, but a terrible death. The sort of death which was meant to give you a sense of terror and send a very, very definite message to all. That has become, in a crazy way, a symbol of love. And that's why we, we have a cross present right next to the word glory here in our church because Jesus changed the whole meaning of it. But the scandal of the cross, the shame of the cross, the scorn of the cross was very much a, a reality as the disciples are heading up to, to Jerusalem. And, and they and others are wondering, is there any other way? Really, is there any other way that this can unfold? Let's have a look at the passage, Mark chapter 10. We're going to read from verse 32 down to 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. They're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished. Well, those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the others at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, 
They became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come to that place again today, confronted by a remarkable passage. It flies in the face of so much of what we hear in the world, and it flies in the face of so much of what goes on in our heart. As always, if we have ears to hear, you are willing to speak. So come, Holy Spirit. Come and speak to each of us, I pray. Let your word go forth because the promise is that it will never return void. Come, Spirit. Minister your word to each of us now. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's interesting putting the passage together like this, isn't it? The prediction, the third prediction of Jesus' death. And right on the back of that, an astonishing question. So it goes something like this. Jesus, for the third time, announces, all right, we're heading up to Jerusalem. Come on, everybody. When we get to Jerusalem, bringing the disciples aside, here's what's going to happen. And this is the most complete account or prediction of what is about to take place by Jesus. Here he spares no details. He says, I will firstly be handed over to the chief priests and the the various teachers of the law, and you know what's going to happen. They are going to hand me then over to the Gentiles, and, and you know how they treat those who have been convicted. I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be spat on, I'm going to be scourged, and I'm going to be killed. Then on the third day, I'll rise again. And then remarkably, James and John says, hey, we've got a question. (laughs) Can we do whatever we ask you to do? We, We want to sit at your right and your left. And you kind of think it sounds so incongruous, doesn't it? Like, what? Where did that come from? Jesus has just shared the agony that he is about to go. Is there no sympathy whatsoever? Like, did you just miss all of that? What is going on? How can such a question come after a revelation like that? It's not that they didn't understand. I mean, they, they would have seen all of this. They've grown up in the midst of Roman rule. The scourging... We, we, we know, just, just as a matter of fact, we, we know a lot about that. Yes, there was the mocking and, the, and, and the, to be spat upon, and given that this is the Son of God, this is remarkable. But the scourging, the whipping, historically, we know a lot about that. Multiple strands of leather with jagged bits of bone embedded in it, anchored with little bits of lead and metal, 
so that those, those whips don't just fall off the body, but they actually string around and, and gain purchase before the bone embeds itself in the skin. One soldier, one side, the other on the other, multiple beating. It, the scourging was, was such a cruel, cruel punishment in itself, it could actually result in death. We're talking about not just... Not just whip marks, but flesh being torn off to the point where if they didn't, didn't stop it in time, it itself would result in death. So the disciples could not have missed this. And then, just in case, they thought that the Son of Man might get off lightly, Jesus says explicitly, and then kill him and they probably knew what the form of death would be. Crucifixion was very common. And it was an agonizing death. So why, why the request? Such a strange request. I think it's this. What they picked up on was this remarkable little statement that Jesus said at the end. And on the third day, I will rise again. Now, we have a certain understanding of what the, what the resurrection looked like, don't we? From our point of view, we, under, we understood that, that God can do that. Done it with Lazarus and, and he would do it again with Jesus. We, we know that. But, but it, remember, at this time, the disciples, they weren't of the school of the Sadducees. They would have believed in resurrection, but their understanding of it would be a little bit different. The resurrection would take place when everybody was resurrected from the dead. It would be on the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, when the Lord comes back. It would be on the day in which his kingdom is ushered in. Therefore, essentially doing the math, they're saying Jesus dies, he rises again. Ah, everybody, that's the day of the Lord. The kingdom of God will be ushered in on that day. And their minds run ahead to quickly not think about the glory of God, but to think about the implications for them. Their eyes quickly shifted from the fact that Jesus in that moment will be resurrected and exalted to his rightful place and their eyes shifted from the exalted Christ to themselves. Ah, what does that mean for us? His kingdom is about to be ushered in. This is good news. It's, it's all coming together now. They'd moved on from the cruel punishment that Jesus must face to the fact that the Romans would be, would be put to flight. The kingdom of God would be ushered in and, and there's a couple of seats <laughs> that need filling and maybe we could help out. <laughs> I guess it's, it's very easy to do, isn't it? It's very easy to look at the mistakes of the disciples and in retrospect saying, of course, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> but the truth is we, we do it all the time, don't we? We so quickly... So quickly shift the narrative and the story from being one about God to being one about ourselves. But interestingly, it's not sharing in God's glory that is the issue for Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 17, verses, verse 22, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus actually prays for the disciples and he says, I have given them the glory that you gave to me. The fact that you and I will share in the glory of God, that's not a problem. It's not a problem for God. It's the plan. It's actually the plan. 
He's going to indwell us with his spirit and the very glory of God himself is going to indwell you and I. In fact, everyone who has believed, it, it currently does. Something of the glory of God can be seen through every believer. It's a beautiful thing. The problem is not that disciples want to share in the glory of God. The problem is, what is the path to that glory? Because Jesus understood that path and the disciples didn't. We know the saying, don't we? In fact, I think it was kind of embroidered on my, on my police academy, the back of our little, little uh, wind cheater. Um, no, uh, no pain, no gain. We know that saying, don't we? Probably adorns just about, just about every room and every gym around Australia. We know that there has to be pain for gain, but Jesus is going a step further. It's not just no, no pain, no gain. It's no death, no life. No cross, no glory. And in that sense, he is taking this to a whole new level. I would probably have to say that misunderstanding the importance of the cross, that there can be no glory without the cross, is probably the cause, I think, of the greatest disappointment and even defeat in Christians. Christians who are retreating in disappointment or even walking away through defeat have, I've discovered, largely misunderstood this principle. They've been sold a brand of Christianity which is very, very prosperous and very, very superficial. And it can lead to great disappointment. It can be confusing. It can be baffling. I, I recall our days on the, on the Dulos, OM's, OM's ship in, in Shanghai and China. And when we arrived there, of course, we were hoping in, in this communist country to be able to, well, be able to be a blessing, to be able to share the good news of God in some way. But as the authorities outlined the rules before us, there would be no witness, there would be no testimony. Yes, we could, we could hold a cultural concert in the city, but we'd have to use their translators. It would be screened and filtered. There would be no proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ in this city by us on this occasion. And I remember just feeling, what's the point? Like, what's the point? What good will come of this? I remember another country we, we went to on one occasion. It would, it would boast that there is absolutely no Christians living there. There is no copies of the scripture and there are no missionaries. That was its clear boast. And we arrived there and we weren't actually even able to, able to pull into port. We had to anchor offshore. And when we went in our little lifeboats to... to um, go into the main, the main city, our bags were checked and so forth, and all we could do was, was walk around the city, do a little bit of shopping, prayer walk, and hope that somehow God would do something. We were close, very, very closely watched, and, and again, I remember thinking, what's the use of this? What good can come from this, this visit? And then Jesus 
addressing this matter, asks the disciples a question which needs to be asked of every disciple. And if you have never been asked this question, today's the day you need to ask it. James and John say, will you do for us whatever we ask? Classic childhood approach to a parent. (laughs) Jesus wisely says, well, what do you want me to do for you? Not making any promises. They reply, well, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your you left in glory, and then Jesus asks them this question. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Every disciple of Jesus Christ at some point in their life must be asked this question. Can you drink the cup? That Jesus drinks. It's restated, really. Can you be baptized with the baptism that I am going to undergo? That baptism being a baptism of death. Can you drink the cup of wrath that I am going to drink? Can you do that? The cup of judgment, it's an Old Testament idiom. It literally means, can you share in what it is that I am going to go through? Restated now as baptism, can you undergo the baptism that I am going to to undergo? A question every disciple must answer. John chapter 12, verse 24, that's the, the context of that is, again, prediction of his death. Jesus adds, adds this little picture. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it does fall to the ground and die, then it multiplies and produces a great harvest. Last Sunday night, a sheepish Joel came came home and we said, hey, how was church? He he attends New Hope Baptist and uh, he said, good. And there was something in his good. It only takes one word, doesn't it, when you study your kids? There's something in that one word that had us, huh, is that good? Looked away. And then Bron had the wisdom to say, who spoke, Joel? I did. He said, Joel, when were you going to tell us? I mean, you, you, you preached your first sermon last uh, Joel, he said, oh, I didn't want you there. You know, all looking silly. What did you speak on? And we had a little bit of a chat that night. The next morning, we got to have a, have a look at the, uh, the link. Actually, it took me a couple of days to have a look at it. But as I, as I watched and was ministered to my son preaching, um, he told the story. He, he kind of, for a first-time preacher, probably shouldn't have gone there. But, but he told the story about a dear friend of ours. Gee, Maybe the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> uh, his cousin, Bethany, who just before she, she had her 16th birthday, passed away from cancer. And he said, um, when he decided to use that illustration, he, he said, you know, um, I thought I was good. I thought I was good. I had it. I had it. But then when I got to that moment in the sermon, he said, gee, it just crept up on me, Dad. Like, I know what he means. Happens. 
But, but Bethany, um, uh, dear friends of the family, just before her 16th birthday, she, she passed away. About a year before that, a year, year and a half before that, she had been with her parents um, at a missions conference in New Zealand. And, and I remember Dave telling me that there were two things on her mind at that conference and at that stage in her life. One was as, as they, they, they had a big world map sort of drawn out over the ground and they had people sort of walking all over the world trying to work out what, what's my place in the world? Where do I fit? Where would God have me serve? And, and Bethany, you know, kind of had a bit of a heart for Africa and, and uh, women in Africa and that sort of bit. But honestly, she wasn't sure where she should stand in the world. That was one of her problems because she really wanted to have a clear call of where God would use her. But the other problem was this. She just really wanted somehow to glorify God, and she felt that she didn't have a very good testimony. Well, within just a few months, all of her prayers would be answered. God would give her an opportunity to glorify him in a most remarkable way. And that was as she became aware of a, of a cancer um, in, in her brain that would take her, take her life, she realized that God was calling her to stand faithful to him to the end. And she did. And she did a beautiful job. Now, Joel was telling that story because he was preaching. He was preaching on stories that bring God glory. And sometimes, as you kids do, he then kind of, kind of just stunned me with this remarkable observation. He said, God has given you a story as well to last night's audience at New Hope. God's given you a story as well. And that story includes a lot of pain and a lot of brokenness. And that's the story that he wants to use for his glory. Yes, we're like jars of, jars of clay that have a treasure within them and there's cracks there and so forth. But through those cracks, God's glory is able to shine through all the more. And this was his point. He said, the thing about your story and all those cracks and the brokenness and so forth, your story, which is going to bring God's glory, here's the thing. It, it doesn't start with you. Chapter one of that story is the cross of Jesus Christ. Chapter one is always the cross. Chapter one is always Jesus. And this is where I just sort of thought, you go, boy. Like, wow. What a great observation. Because without the cross, there would be no story. Without the cross, there would be no testimony. Without the cross, quite frankly, there is no glory. It's the glory of the cross. The cross comes first. Because of the cross, there can be glory. Because of the cross, there is a story. I didn't mean that to rhyme. Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Sometimes I think it feels like our life is like one of those, 
those games of Jenga. It's, it's um, little wooden blocks which are built into this tower, and one by one you, you take a piece away. And sometimes the Christian life is a little bit like, if I take this one too, will you still stand firm? If I take this away, will you still stand firm? If I take this away, will, I still, will you still stand firm? There can be no glory without a cross. Sometimes, Sky, Sky used these words in her prayer earlier, sometimes it feels like everything is being stripped away. Yes, that's the plan. That is exactly the plan. There can be no glory without a cross. John 12, 24, Jesus talks about, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, that's in the context of his prediction of his death. And then in verse 28, he goes on and he says, you know, my spirit is greatly troubled within me. What shall I pray, that this cup be taken from me? No. No, I pray that, Father, you would be glorified. In other words, Jesus is about to have absolutely everything stripped away from him. Everything will be stripped away from him. But one thing, he'll still have his father. And that's, that's all he wants. And this is to his father's glory. He will be obedient to his father to the very end. And he asks that his father will be glorified. The story of Gideon is a story that says sometimes less is more. The story of Gideon is a story in which God essentially says, I'm sorry, I can't use your greatness. And we can so often bring our lives before God and we say, well, this is what I have to offer you. And God says to us, I'm sorry, I can't use your greatness. That has to be stripped away. It has to go. I love to shine through a cracked jar. That's my way. The question every disciple must answer is, can you drink from this cup? And the answer every disciple must give is the answer that James and John give. Yes, we can. Now, yes, it may have been stated a little bit out of ignorance and naivety, they may not have fully understood what it was that they were answering, but the answer every disciple must give at some point is, yes, I can. Indeed, yes, I will. And Jesus affirms the answer. I, I, I wonder whether if you were to read tone in this particular passage, when Jesus comes to them and he says, you will drink the cup. I think there is both sadness and joy in that tone. Sadness because Jesus understands that they will. Joy because he understands that they must. There's no other way. You want to go up, you need to go down. You want to be great, you need to be small. You want to share in God's glory, you must share in the cross. What is it that you want from God? Ultimately, immediately, today, what do you want from God? What is it that you really want from God? To know if you can finish that, put a word there, a sentence, 
But the next question is, what is it that God wants from you in order to give that to you? What is it that needs to die so that you can receive what it is that you would like from God? The story of Job is a story, as you know, it's kind of one of the more depressing ones in the Old Testament. Very, very early. An incredible cosmic insight into the heavenly realm. Job loses it all. He questions God's wisdom. He admits his ignorance. And then, in chapter 42, towards the conclusion, he makes this remarkable, stunning observation about God. He says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. There it is, and a stunning revelation about the sovereignty of God. But how does he know that? Here is Job, who has lost everything there is. Everything has been stripped away from him. Almost 30 chapters of reflection on why did it get stripped away from him. And finally, towards the end, in chapter 42, he says, and yet here I'll make a declaration about God's sovereignty. I know. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. How does he know? He says in verse 5, Well, up until recently, my ears had heard of you. Now my eyes have seen you. Through Job's experience, through that stripping away of everything else, he saw God's glory. He saw God as he really is. He saw the glory of God. Up to that point, he'd only heard it. My ears had heard of you. Everything in my life is stripped away. Now I can make this sovereign declaration about who you really are because my eyes have seen you. You have been glorified. I now know who you are. Glory comes out of suffering. The answer that every disciple must give is, yes, Jesus. This is difficult, but yes, Jesus, I will drink from the same cup as you. The glory of the cross is this. God will take us to the end of ourselves, and when we get there, we suddenly discover the new life that he has for all those who will die to self. James will become the first martyr in the early church. He did drink from that cup. John would be exiled to the island of Patmos. That was the end for him. And I guess in closing this up, I want to say, yes, this is a hard teaching, and I have perhaps just a, by way of application just a, just a few things as the, the band are going to come up and we're just going to lead now into a time of communion and reflection. But let me, let me just share these closing thoughts. This is a hard teaching. Remember, though, last week in the preceding passage, the disciples were actually talking. They were saying that same thing. They were saying that very same thing to Jesus. Well, hey, if a rich man can't get into, into heaven, well, what hope is there? 
How could that be? Jesus simply replies in verse 27, all things are possible with God. This is a hard teaching. How could it be that there has to be a cross in order for there to be glory? How could it be that you and I drink from that cup? It's a hard teaching. It might even feel impossible. But all things are possible with God. Secondly, we've just kind of, have we not had this time focusing on the gifts of the Spirit? We've been thinking and talking about ministry. And Jesus finishes this instruction to the disciples in verse 45 by saying, you see, even the Son of Man didn't come to uh, be served, but to serve. And the word serve there in the Greek is the same word for ministry. You could read it this way. In fact, some translations adopt this wording. The Son of Man did not come to be ministered to, but he came to minister. And I guess as we think about the gifts of the Spirit and the grace of God that flows through us to be a blessing to others, we remind ourselves that the gifts are to be focused outwardly. I have not given you my Spirit and these particular gifts so that you can be ministered to. I've given them to you so that you can minister to others. That's the teaching of Jesus. And lest there be any misunderstanding on this point, Jesus goes further and He says to give my life as a ransom for all. We sometimes, don't we, when we talk of ministry, we sometimes say, I need to give of myself. And Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, no, it's not enough to give of yourself. Follow my example. I give myself. Completely, entirely, utterly. Totally. I don't just give of myself. I give myself my life as a ransom for all. That's the model that we have been given. And then lastly, let me share with you a reassurance. The cross might feel like a big ask, but here's the promise. Verse 40. In getting to the real answer with James and John, who sits on the right, who sits on the left, it's not an absolute denial that they will share in His glory. Jesus just can't promise them in that moment what that's going to look like. Why? Because those places have already been prepared. There is a place for you. There is a place for you to share in the glory of God. It's absolutely promised and it's already been prepared for you. A place to share in God's glory has been prepared for each and every one of you. It's via the way of the cross, yes. But that place has been prepared. And again, just going back a few verses, Jesus had already been talking about that. Peter said, hey, we've given up everything. And Jesus says, okay, I know, I know, I got this. You have. And don't think for a moment that you won't receive a reward a hundred times greater than what it is that you have given up for me, both in this life and the life to come. In this life, you know, the way of the cross seems so puzzling at times. But there in China, we had our little cultural concert. And no, we 
We couldn't slip in any little subtle message apart from a gospel song called Amazing Grace. But afterwards, the translator who was sifting, filtering, screening every word that was spoken and then translating it, she came up to, she came up to the MC and she said, I'm doing my master's thesis in community. I mean, hey, <laughs> I've been reading all of the communist literature on this, but you guys have something that I've never seen before in my entire life. And the other day you said, yeah, 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 it's in a book. I mean, we got a book, a little red one, but you got a book too. You said the secret to community was found in that book called the Bible. I asked my professor, could I use the Bible to to kind of research my master's thesis on community? And he said, you can, you can do that. He said, I, I, I just need to get myself a copy of the Bible. God was at work. In this other country that boasted no Christians, no Bible, no missionaries, we just asked ourselves, this is hopeless. What, what are we doing here? What are we doing here, God? We're just faithful. We walked the streets and we prayed and and one group came back to the ship one day and said, you'll never believe just what happened. We're walking past this shop. This isn't a country where English is, is not spoken at all. We're just walking past this shop and Hillsong music is playing from the shop. Hillsong. So we go in and we kind of say, yeah, like your music. Kind of, kind of cool. Say, oh, breaking into English. Yeah, we play it all the time. We're Christians. We're here as God's salt and light. And of course, because nobody speaks English, they haven't got a clue what we're playing. But they know that when they come in, there's something different about this place. And they just, they just love our shop. And we've had so many opportunities to live out the love of Jesus Christ in this place. God was at work. Sometimes it's through the most bizarre means, the most remarkable ways, the most ridiculous schemes that God accomplishes what it is that He wants to accomplish. But the cross is the way to glory. And we're going to actually um, celebrate that in the most, most beautiful way now around the Lord's Supper. Jesus, as He held up the cup, He said, this cup is the cup of a new covenant. I will not drink again of this vine until I come again in all of my glory. That is beautiful, huh? That means there was a cup that Jesus drank and that was the cup of God's wrath and judgment, which He would take upon Himself. But He is gonna be handed another cup. At that, that great day when the Lord comes again at that banquet, where all of us are going to feast with our heavenly Father in all of His glory, there is another cup that's going to be in Jesus' hand on that day and He will invite us to drink of that cup as well. There is a sense in which when He says, can you drink this cup, the cup of judgment, He will also share with us another cup, the cup that He will drink from in His glory when He shares His glory from us. He will trade cups with us as well. The cup that we drink from now will be traded for another cup. And so as we come at this time and we, we take that cup and and as we think of that cup of suffering that Jesus took on our behalf and on behalf of all of humanity, just remember that it will be replaced with another cup and we drink of that too. 
So we'll have some different stations set up around the place. Please, as the band just plays quietly in the background. Come and take the cup, take the bread, eat the bread. Allow that to be that moment between you and Jesus where you just confess whatever it is that is on your heart that needs to be confessed. Thank Him that His body was broken for you. Thank you that His blood was shed for you. Thank you that He was resolute to go up to Jerusalem for you. Thank Him for the cross. Thank Him for that moment. He would not, he would not digress from that path. He would not ask for that cup to pass from Him. Instead, He asked, No, Father, I want You to be glorified. Thank Him for that. Receive the forgiveness of sin that He offers. Put on that cloak of righteousness that He offers to you once more. And keep the cup and we'll come and we'll drink that together in just a moment. Jesus, we thank you so much for not only your example of a servant leader and your model of what it means to be obedient to the Father, but we thank you that through your obedience, You have atoned for our sin. The blood, your blood, which was shed, covers all sin and marks the way through which we can take part in a righteousness not of our own, but of the very Son of God. As we take this cup, as we take this bread, Holy Spirit, come and lead us in a meditation upon that truth which blesses your heart and cleanses the Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Please make your way to any of these stations. Take the bread, take the cup, keep the cup, and we'll come back and we'll we'll drink that together just shortly.
together Jesus Christ is both Saviour and Lord let's say that together Jesus Christ is Saviour and Lord Lord we want to thank you your word and thank you for such a great gift of love. Thank you for being obedient to the Father. Thank you for putting his glory first. Thank you for your invitation this morning to share in the cup from which you drank. The promise is, as we share in the cross, we share in your glory. want to say once more, Father, you, we love you, we worship you, we exalt you. You are worthy of our whole life. You deserve it all. And in total surrender and abandonment to you, you can have it all, Lord. not just words sung with our lips. It's a cry from the heart. 